So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been reading from Matthew's uh, biography of Jesus. Uh, there's there's four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're, we've been reading in the one written by Matthew, there we go. So we got some, we got some Bible students here. So, um, so, uh, we've been, we've been reading in Matthew's uh, gospel and we've been looking at chapter nine. And, um, what we've been seeing as we've been looking at it is that Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching and his teaching is controversial. It's, it, it electrifies crowds, but it also brings critics who, who, uh, raise controversies. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is that Jesus has, has taught these different lessons and people have been have been either kind of mildly or seriously um, upset with the things Jesus had to, to say. So he's had opportunities to tell people about uh, the things of God in a way that maybe uh, has challenged some of them. So, so that's what we've been looking at. Um, but the the story begins with um, a, a controversy that leads to a miracle, and and it's worth rehearsing kind of where that came from because it helps us to understand what's going on in the in in this section of Matthew's. Biography. Uh, Jesus begins uh, with a controversy where he's he's teaching about God, and then some people break a hole through the roof and they lower a man down on a on a bed, and uh, Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." And the the people who are in the room they say, "Well, you can't do that, Jesus. You don't have authority to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin." So Jesus performs a miracle to show he's authorized by God to do pretty much anything he wants. So he says, he says, take up your mat and go home. And the guy goes home. And so, uh, he, he shows he's got the authority, but he does so in a way that, that kind of says, uh, miracles are not the point. The, the point of Jesus is not the things he did to show off, uh, God's power, but the things he came to teach. And, and so that's really kind of where we've been is that, is that Jesus has, has been doing these, these, uh, teachings with different people. First, that same group of scribes. Where he talked about the authority he has, and then, and then he taught about uh, how uh, he, he uh, people said, Jesus, you shouldn't hang out with people like that. And Jesus said, That's actually who I came for. And uh, if you want me to come for you, you've got to be willing to hang out with people like that too. So uh, he, he had a he had a controversy with the Pharisees about what kind of people he hung out with. And then last week he had a controversy with the the disciples of John the Baptist who weren't sure if he was doing all the right religious rituals or not. And so Jesus has had a whole lot of controversy, um, and it kind of all began with that first controversy where he performed a miracle, really to show miracles are not the point. And now we get to the middle of this section of, of Matthew's Gospel, and suddenly it's miracles. It's all miracles all the way to the end of this chapter. We're going to have four different miracles, three stories. Uh, one has two miracles in it, the one we looked at today. And then uh, more miracles... Um, uh, as as we go to the end of the the uh, chapter, and it's almost like Matthew changed his mind. It's like he said, "Yeah, I know I said earlier that miracles aren't the point, but now I'm just going to give you wall to wall miracles for the rest of this chapter." And so we can we can say, "Well, what's up with that, Matthew? Why are you changing your mind? Did did you change your mind? Have you suddenly decided that miracles are the point after all? That that really miracles are what Jesus is all about? Because I can tell you, if so, church is going to be a whole lot more fun in the future, right?" We're going to have people coming here. We're going to be putting um, uh, arms back on people. We're going to be giving people, you know, new cars or whatever else they've been praying for. If God is suddenly all about granting um, our prayers and giving us miraculous answers to prayers, then church is probably going to be a lot more fun, and it's probably going to be a lot better filled up because because people want miracles. Pe- miracles are exciting and, and fun, and who wouldn't want to go to a church where there's miracles happening every week? I would. So, so what's up with you, Matthew? Why are you, 
Why did you tell us, don't worry about the miracles, they're not important, pay attention to the teaching, and now suddenly we're going to get all miracles for the rest of the chapter? I think the reason is because Matthew knows and Jesus knows that talk is cheap, that anybody can tell you something, but the important thing is, is, is does the things that they say line up with what they do? And so what he's going to be doing for the rest of this chapter is he's going to be uh, walking the walk, so to speak. He's, he's been talking the talk, and now we're going to see what does it actually look like when he begins um, acting. Are the actions of Jesus in line with all the things he's taught? So that's kind of where we're going over the next couple of weeks. We'll be looking at these miracles that Jesus performs. And so this this first story has actually got two miracles in it. So what I'd like to do now is look at this this uh, miracle story where Jesus is, he's still in the very middle of having this this conversation with John's uh, disciples. John the Baptist, they came and they wanted to talk to Jesus. And it says, while he was saying these things to them, he's interrupted. Suddenly, a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now we know from this, this, this story actually appears in two of the other biographies of Jesus. So we actually know a little bit more about the story. But Matthew has really compressed it. He's taken out all kinds of details to just leave us just kind of this outline structure. Because I think Matthew really wants us to pay attention to Jesus' actions. So we don't know uh, here, although we can find out in one of the other biographies, the name of this synagogue leader is Jairus. And Jairus comes to Jesus and says, Hey, my daughter's dying. Um, uh, but Matthew has compressed that because in the in the longer versions of the story, uh, the daughter dies while Jairus is talking to Jesus, and somebody comes and says, oh, "It's too late; she's already dead." And so Matthew has just compressed that. He says, "He says um, that my daughter is dead, but come and put your hand on her, and she will she will be saved; she will live." And and that seems like the most reasonable thing to to do. Uh, Jesus should should do that. That's the kind of stuff we would expect Jesus to do. But we need to stop a minute and understand what it is that Jairus is asking for. Because what what uh, Jairus is saying here may sound innocuous, but actually he's asking a lot of Jesus. First of all, he's intruding in the middle of this teaching we've already heard is so important. But then the thing he says is, "Hey, Jesus, I know you're a I know you're a religious leader. I know you know all about the the Old Testament law. Do you remember that part?" in Numbers 19, where it says that you can't touch a dead body? Well, um, well, I want you to do that. So, so Jesus, he's saying, he's saying, Jesus, touch a dead body. In Numbers 19, it says, those who touch the dead body of any human being will be unclean for seven days. And what they mean by unclean is ritually impure. There's nothing sinful. It doesn't make God angry when you, when you uh, touch a dead body. Uh, it just means that you can't participate in the religious life of the community of God's people. So you just have this period of time where where for seven days you are ritually uh, unclean or impure, and then things go back to normal. Uh, and so what Jairus is saying, hey, I know you're a religious leader. How would you like a seven-day mandatory unpaid vacation? Because that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to touch my daughter and then be uh, unable to participate in the worshiping life, which is what you're doing. You're going to synagogues and you're teaching in synagogues. Jesus, I'd like you to do that. And we would say, well, you know, but still, Jesus never let that kind of thing bother him. Why wouldn't he go ahead and do that? He may have to juggle his schedule a little bit, you know, teach on hillsides instead of synagogues, but 
But he can do that. That's Jesus. He can, he can do that. Uh, because after all, it's somebody's daughter. I mean, you know, you, you have to, you have to, you have to care, right? If you're Jesus, you have to care. Well, we have to care. And I think one of the reasons we have to care is because of Jesus, because Jesus taught us that we should care. But this was an exceptional thing in his era. Um, I, I finished reading this book a couple of months ago, and I wanted to read you this. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was a huge shortage of women. There's 140 men for every 100 women. Do you know why that is? Can you imagine why that would be? Uh, so the, he's talking about everywhere from Spain all across, all across Italy and Greece, um, over to the Middle East and then across northern Africa. Uh, that whole, the, the Mediterranean Rim, the entire Greco-Roman world, there was this huge imbalance, 140 men for every 100 women. Why was that? The reason was because all the girls were being killed because they were born the wrong sex. Here's a letter. Here's a real letter from the first century Somebody wasn't able to be home when his, when his son was born. So he wrote his letter. He wrote this letter to his wife. He says this, I ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. If you're delivered of a child before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. You say, what? You know, is this like a crime he's plotting by night, you know, in the cover of darkness? No, this is a postcard he sends through the mail. He says, hey, um, if we have a son, keep it. And if it's a boy, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, uh, put her out in a hillside, let her die of exposure to the elements or maybe a predator. Because that's what people did. That's why they had that big imbalance. In Rome, there was a law that said this. Uh, the law of Rome, Romulus in Rome, a father was required to raise all healthy male children, but only the firstborn female. Any others were disposable. And a Greek poet wrote this. He said, everyone raises a son even if he's poor, but exposes a daughter even if he's rich. Because in that culture, women were disposable, literally disposable. So Jairus is saying, Jesus, I want you to come here. I want you to take a week off um, because my daughter's important to me. Now, Jairus, she was important to Jairus, but Jairus couldn't assume in his culture that this girl would be important to anybody else. So Jairus goes to Jesus and says, I want you to take a week off to save my, my daughter. Um, and, and he just, he just assumes that Jesus can do that. There's one last thing. Uh, back in the old days when people would read the scriptures, uh, they would read long chunks of it for as long as the audience would hold out. Um, so we don't do that today. We tend to take little pieces and pick them apart like I'm doing today. But in, in the first century church, when people heard this, they would have heard chapter eight as well. And in chapter eight, a Roman uh, centurion comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, could you heal my servant? And Jesus says, sure. And he gets up to go. And the centurion says, wait, hold on, hold on. You don't have to go. I'm not worthy to receive you in my house. He says, what you do is you say he's cured here and he will be cured there. And Jesus says, wow, somebody who finally gets it. Somebody who understands what kind of authority I have. So back in chapter 8, we've already seen a pagan who has a great understanding of how Jesus has authority. But this religious leader, this, the synagogue leader, does not have that clarity about who Jesus is. He assumes Jesus is going to have to come and lay his hand on the daughter in order to save her. So he's saying, he's saying, Jesus, I want you to inconvenience yourself. I want you to do something for a very low status person. And I want you to do it even though I don't have as much faith 
as a pagan does. I'm just a synagogue leader, and I don't really trust you very much. I don't, I don't have a good understanding of who you are and how, how you're connected to God, but I want you to do this for me anyway. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus looks back at the man, and he says, he says, I'm sorry I can't do that. Um, that would be inconvenient. I've got some plans. I'm going to be going to some synagogues next week, and that would mess that up. He says, I can't do it um, because it is, after all, a girl, and besides, your faith is very poor. That's what Jesus says, right? No, Jesus gets up. He immediately hops up and follows him. He cuts his teaching short and follows him uh, with his disciples. And then we have this strange interlude. Uh, a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages comes up behind him. She touches the fringe of his cloak um, because she says, um, if I touch his cloak, I'll be made well. Now, again, we can get more details in the other Gospels. We read in Mark that she's been she's been ill for, for 12 years. She's had some kind of hemorrhage. And um, uh, she has suffered much, not from the hemorrhages, but from all the quack physicians she's gone to. It says she's suffered much at the hands of many physicians, and she spent all she had. So she suffered in every kind of way, and the only reason she's coming to Jesus is she's run out of quacks. There's nobody else she can go to to get any help, and besides, she doesn't have any money to pay them. So she's coming to Jesus as a last resort. But she knows that uh, she knows that Jesus is probably not going to uh, touch her because that would make her, her unclean. In fact, in Leviticus 15, we read... If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, as in the days of her impurity, that's her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. So you can't touch her, you can't touch anything she's touched. She's she's an untouchable, literally, for the period of her uncleanness, which in her case is for 12 years. For 12 years, no one has been able to touch her, really have almost anything to do with her. And so she knows Jesus is not going to make time for her. So what she does is she sneaks up behind him and says, I'll just take it. He's got healing to spare. He's not using it anyway. I'll just take it. So she does. And Jesus turns around. Jesus is aware of what's happened. He turns around and he says, he says, daughter, this is the only place in all the gospels Jesus uses this very tender word. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. You, you didn't steal it. You didn't get it by touching me. It's, it's not magic. You got it because you have faith. Well, what kind of faith does she have? She has faith that Jesus will turn her away if she comes to the front door. That she's got to sneak up. Even that little bit of faith she's got there is enough to satisfy Jesus. So then he goes on. She's, she's healed. Instantly the woman is made well. And then Jesus goes to the leader's house. He sees the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Um, in the Jewish world, you had to bury somebody within 24 hours. So you would hire your wailing women. You'd hire your noisemakers, the flute players and everything. You'd get them on the case as soon as you were sure somebody was dead. And they're already here. So we know that the girl is dead. But Jesus says, go away. The girl's not dead, but is sleeping. And they laugh at him because, of course, she's dead. You don't hire, you don't hire the, the people to make a commotion until you're sure she's dead. Um, so they laugh at him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went inside, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report spread throughout the district. So, so what is the lesson here? What is the lesson? Jesus has been interrupted in the middle of something important. First, this teaching, which we've heard how important it is. He's interrupted. And then he's interrupted again on the way to this thing that must be more important than the teaching, 
because he's interrupting himself to do it. He gets interrupted by the woman um, who has the flow of blood. And um, Jesus is interrupted by people who have low sta- uh, people who have very little faith. The the uh, synagogue leader has, has not as much faith even as a Roman centurion. The the woman has faith, but she's got so little that she thinks she has to sneak up on Jesus. On be, the, these these people interrupt on behalf of low status people, women who had who had no status at all in that culture, um, and uh, Jesus does this um, not because they said, "Hey, I've got a problem. I'm going to go to Jesus," but because they said, "I've got a problem." I've tried everything else. Let me try Jesus as a last resort. So that's who comes to Jesus, and that's who Jesus helps. Jesus is interrupted repeatedly. Let me see how I put this. Jesus is interrupted repeatedly by people with little faith for people of low status with hopeless problems as a last resort. This is what Jesus is all about. And he's been telling us now in all the teaching he's done, but now he demonstrates it. So the question is, is that you? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I've got this thing that's going on in my life, this thing that's really bugging me, this thing I'd really like some help with, but you know what? I'm going to try one more thing. I haven't reached my last resort yet. And then you get to the last resort and you say, but who would want to help me now because they know that I, I've been dissing them all this time and making them my last resort. Have you ever have you ever said to yourself, well, you know what, I've got this problem and it's important to me, but it's not important to Jesus because Jesus is worried about things I can't even imagine. He's worried about, you know, who's going to be president in a hundred years and he's sorting out, you know, factors and, and parameters that I can't even understand. Jesus is worried about important things and I don't want to interrupt him in the middle of what he's doing. Maybe you thought, well, you know what? It's not so much that what he's doing is important. It is. It's that I am totally unimportant. I have no claim on Jesus. I don't have a good faith. I don't go to church often. I don't, I don't tithe. I don't do all the things I'm supposed to do. I have not got a leg to stand on. I can't, I, there's nothing I can do to Jesus and say, you owe me. Or maybe the situation is just that, that, that you look at Jesus and you say to yourself, he, he's not going to help me because, because, um, because it's, it's the last resort. And, and if I use this, then I won't have any left at all. And it's a hopeless problem. And I'm kind of saving Jesus because, because I'm afraid that he's going to fail too. And then if he fails, I'll be, I'll be miserable. I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll have no hope. And so we kind of keep Jesus in our back pocket. And say, that's what, that's what, you know, I've always got that, but I just never actually use it. The lesson we see in this scripture, the lesson we see from these miracles is that Jesus is happy. He's delighted to hop up from what he's doing, to interrupt what he's doing, even though it's important to be interrupted over and over again by people who have no claim on him, people who have no faith, no, no history of faith. On behalf of low status people, people, he's not going to win anything. He's not going to get anybody's approval by helping people like that with hopeless problems as a last resort. That's the Jesus we worship. Thanks be to God. Amen.